back to another amazing episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pokolsky. Thank you so much for joining me today. Today's guest is Dr. Andy Galpin, and no muscle building performance conversation would be complete without this gentleman. His contribution to research over the last 10 years has been nothing short of remarkable and ultimately game-changing. Andy takes a very open-minded skeptic approach to his research and his thought process. He's currently coaching some of the top athletes in the world from the Major League Baseball to National Hockey League to UFC and so well beyond that. Andy is exploring the realms of possibility, the outskirts of performance. And what that means to me is somebody who's thinking outside of the box. Instead of following common dialogue and just simply doing what everyone else is doing. And he's looking for ways to really push the frontiers of what's possible in human performance. And that's what makes this conversation such a great one. Andy Galpin is a professor at UC Fullerton and uh, just an amazing, amazing human. He's a dad. He's a passionate man who just truly loves what he does. And it's really a gift to have Andy join us today yet again on the podcast. He's one of my favorite guests. This is his third time returning. Andy and I have had some great conversations and this one is nothing short. Today's podcast is brought to you by our amazing friends over at Buy Optimizers. They have another special offer for you today. So listen close. Magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence is going to get you 10% off and free shipping. So you're going to save a bunch of cash when you head over to magbreakthrough.com slash muscle intelligence. Use the code muscle10 for 10% off at least. Some other things are going to give you more and you're going to get free shipping right now when you take action and pick up magnesium breakthrough. Why should you pick up magnesium breakthrough? Because stress is a big, big part of our current society. And magnesium tends to be the mineral that we burn through fastest when we're stressed. So whether you're training hard, whether you're stressed from work, whether you're just stressed from life, magnesium tends to be the mineral that most people are deficient in because it's so prevalent in so many different processes. So again, that's mag breakthrough, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash muscle intelligence to get hooked up with 10% off your order and free shipping. So don't miss out guys and enjoy the show. Dr. Andy Bell. When we're looking at optimization of an athlete and we've removed the biochemical component, which I know you work together closely um, with our friend, and we could say his name or not, your, your call, uh, Dan Garner, and um, he's doing the biochemical side. So he's doing the, the blood, the urine, the, the microbiome and all the internal metrics. And you're optimizing the athlete from another side. And that is so fascinating to me because these are the things like most people don't get biochemistry and that's kind of dance space. And most people also don't get how to optimize the physiological outcomes that they're trying to achieve with an athlete. And you might be one of the best guys in the world now, and certainly are one of the best guys in the world. Um, so I'd love to look like if we were to start high level and say, okay, someone walks into your life and we want to start high level and say, what are all the things we're looking at? How, where do you start? Yep. So the way that we think about this is, um, everything rolls under this umbrella that we call our biomolecular athlete. And we're trying to take this DNA all the way to human performance picture. We want to print a biomolecular portrait of this individual. And so we can optimize 
without, you know, I hate that word, but we can get as close to what we call their true physiological potential as we possibly can. So in order to do that, we have to take a little bit of a step back from, say, just worrying about a particular hormone or enzyme and understand what it really means to be a human being. And that task is impossible. It's, it's thousands and thousands of metrics, but we, we've spent a bit of time and used a lot of experience with high-level performers and boiled it down to a handful of things. And so really what we do in our diagnostics is just that. So we use a variety of laboratory-based techniques. We use everything from questionnaires to some basic tracking uh, to some other objective scans and metrics. And we truly try to capture this true physiological potential. And then we break them down into a couple of categories. And once I lay these categories out, I can show you Dan's piece. And then we can, you know, put that back. You have to go back a few episodes and listen to Dan talk about that side. And then we'll focus on the other sides. So really the three main categories, we call these hidden stressors, visible stressors, and then recovery capacity. Now, the visible stressors we can talk a lot about today. But those are the things we call them visible because you tend to be somewhat aware of them. You can see them, you can feel them, they affect you today, typically acutely and chronically. Just a really easy example of that is uh, your body composition, right? So you, you can that look down at yourself and realize, geez, I need to lose some weight or I'm too thin or, or whatever. You're going to see and feel these things. The next category was what we call hidden stressors. So sometimes these are symptomatic and this, the gut microbiome is a good example of this. So sometimes people know they have gut issues, but sometimes they don't, right? So these can be hidden stressors. You don't necessarily know that you're a little bit deficient in B5. You may not know that your copper is a little high. Um, you may feel some symptoms, but you're not gonna have a direct like, oh my gosh, I drank too much booze last night. I feel terrible. That, that, is, that is a visible stressor, right? You know you're smoking too much. You know, you're not working out or whatever. So Dan handles a lot of the hidden stressors. Um, and that's when your saliva and stool and sweat samples and everything else come in. And then your recovery capacity. And so the, what, the way that we think about it is, is adaptability. So your ability to make progress and change over time is a function of your total stress load and your recovery capacity. And so the amount of total stressors someone can take it's different because it's also a function of the recovery capacity. So someone with a very high recovery capacity could handle more total stressors and someone in the opposite scenario would be struggling or somewhere in between. So we're trying to capture all that stuff in the most objective and subjective factors possible. And once we do that, then that's how we paint this portrait. And then we can come in and give the individual, the high performer snapshot and say, hey, these are the categories that are probably going to move the biggest lever. With you, right? So these are what we call severe performance anchors. So these are things that are, you know, think about dragging your ship from behind. And this is like you're you're trying and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing, but it just feels like you're rowing uphill. You're just not getting anywhere. And that's not because you're not moving and doing the right things, but it's because some big ass anchor is dragging you underneath the water that you don't even realize. So all we really have to do is remove that anchor and the ship sails. So the last analogy I'll here and then I'll pause um, is kind of imagine that you're driving a car downhill and you're like, Hey, Andy, I want to go faster. I said, okay, well, you have two possible options. One, you can remove the brakes or you can hit the accelerator. Well, what most people talk about and what they want to jump to 
is hitting the accelerator. So you want to hit the gas because your assumption is I hit the gas, I go faster. But if your foot smashed down on the brake, all the only thing that happens when you hit the gas is you might go a little faster, but you're also probably going to burn your motor or something's going to blow. And so what we're really trying to figure out is, is your foot on the pedal? Is it on the, all the way down to the floor? Is it kind of down? Is it 5% down? If so, we want to remove that anchor. Remove your foot off the brake because you'll just start going way faster by just removing your foot off the brake. If that's still not enough, then we can start getting some really fancy stuff um, to speed up the process and go faster. But in order to avoid you blowing the pieces and getting the, your actual results, getting to your destination faster, um, well, we got to look at both sides of the equation. So that's the big picture of, of what we do with our, um, our biomolecular athlete program. I think that's like literally the perfect metaphor, right? Most guys are rolling around with, the, with their emergency brake on and trying to hit the gas pedal and they're just not going anywhere. And, and they're revving the engine, they're, they're burning hot and they're not sure what's going on and they're spinning their wheels. That's literally the perfect metaphor. So what are the typical things that you're working on to start removing those brakes? I know we talked about a few before we started recording, but what maybe you have a list of things that are typical. Yep. So as I started to, and we have to understand physiology is uh, a, a stepward progression from complexity. So if you start at your DNA, you know, DNA then goes in to make molecules and molecules make cells, cells make tissue, tissue make organs, organs make organ systems and that's you. Okay, fantastic. Well, what we have to do is try to capture where are your baked breaks being applied? So if we go all the way down to the bottom and we look at the DNA and your genes, there are potential breaks that could be happening there. So various DNA polymorphisms and everything else. Well, I can't change you there. So we might look at that, especially if we have some indication that something's going on. But for the most part, we don't spend a lot of energy there because you can't do shit about it, right? It's, this is not something that's a huge deal. So same thing kind of as you move from the molecule all the way up, it's tough to change. So we really try to spend our attention on what are the things that are the easiest to change that have the biggest impact. So from the, the visible stressor side, uh, a big category is emotional and psychological processing. And so we are certainly not experts in that. We don't deal with PTSD or trauma or things like that. But there are some evidence-based, science-based questionnaires you can use. And there are some other ones that I have uh, borrowed from world-leading sports psychologists. And we run folks through these questionnaires. And if we see anything pop up, then we're going to push them, whether it be to a sports psychologist or a therapist or um, I even had one individual just this week, professional athlete, who it's one of the first person people I've identified in our group that I said, I think you are really a strong candidate for psychedelic uh, physical. Really? Psychedelic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what what made that reasons. stand out to you? Like, what was the, what, what, what was it about them? Yeah, it was actually a combination of a lot of things, but it was extreme trauma in an area in which I don't think many humans could understand or sympathize with. Um, it was some long, and it was a, I'd say it's a, it was a, it's a cycle, but the physiology was good. And so once the physiology is there to support it, it's like, I think you need just something that'll smack you in the face. And it's just like, we need a perspective change. We need a shift change, a really hard, really aggressive shift change. And I think that's going to be, Combined then, of course, with ongoing work with a professional. That's different than someone who's been depressed their whole life and just dealt with kind of all of these things. Like you just have a lot of work I think you have to do. Um, 
out of my area here, but this individual is just like, hey, you just had some really crazy shit happen. Um, we're kind of in a spiral right now. I think we should just hit the brakes to just pop out of the system. I think that's going to be really helpful. Hmm. There's more to it than that, but I'm trying to say as top level as I can there. Um, so that's one part of it. And I started there because that's, again, that's not our area of interest. I think we can have more conversation about the area that I'm more versed in. Um, so outside of that, we're looking for things like physical stress. So this is basic training program. Is it appropriate? Is it well-rounded? Is it hitting all the physiological needs uh, that you need to participate in your sport as well as to have a, an appropriate physiology? Um, hydration. So there's some really cool tech that, that we have that we can really real-time data on hydration content uh, as well. So are we optimizing? The, in fact, we had this this week um, with an individual who's the number one player in the world in his sport. And uh, we just changed some salt things on the day of competition and just the physiology numbers just took off and performance right. took off. So that is a big uh, thing you can play with. And it's just one of those topics that people are just like, oh yeah, drink more water. And everyone says it, but then no one really talks like about what specifically to do. And then no one executes it. So it's a huge lever if you actually do the shit, <laughs> you do it right. You don't just like right. just drink water. And, um, and then from there, it's diet guessing. quality. Exactly. Like we don't guess. I, the folks I work with, like we do not have time right. to guess, not to guess. And then the last one in the big category is, of course, sleep. And the way that I can say it is there's infinite sleep technology right now that'll tell you how you're sleeping, you know, how many hours you slept and it'll give you all these readiness scores and HRV. Um, but our tech is the only thing in the world that'll show you why you're sleeping that way. And so it's the most well-rounded scientifically advanced comprehensive sleep diagnostics that, that's available in the world. And so that has just been an absolute uh, game changer for our folks because it, it, it regulates so much physiology. So let's talk about that because you seem very excited about that and sleep is massive for everyone. So I'd love to one, talk about the, the approach and maybe talk about the tech. Yep, sure. Uh, if you take something that like, like a classic wearable, they're gonna. Some of these are good and some of them are bad. Aura is a good example. They've just released their V three, and uh, the previous versions were okay for things. Pretty good for things like total sleep and the time you went to sleep and the time you woke up and things like that. But they were not holding up scientifically for the sleep stages. So you couldn't trust you know, how many minutes of REM or deep sleep you were getting off of an aura ring before. Now the claim is with their new V3, they've changed their algorithms and that's better. And it honestly looks to be that case so far, but we'll have to wait for the studies to come out to confirm that. So what happens is they've got to match that up against full sleep study, um, what we call PSG. So polysonography, uh, actually EEG signals in your brain and things like that. And it's gotta be a separate organization. Um, but let's say, let's say it works. Um, because actually the numbers we've got on athletes, they look better now. Well, that's great. Um, the downside about any of that sleep tech, though, and the reason I'm saying or is because I, I, I generally do like it, actually. So I'm, I'm using this as support, not as a criticism, relative to almost everything else in the market for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Whoop has some benefits too. But the issue, though, is it's telling you you slept like shit. Okay, then what do I do about it? Sleep more. Well, that's great. Like. <laughs> Maybe I can't because of my schedule or two, like I'm fucking trying asshole, but like I can't. So it's not particularly helpful. Um, what we have done is built something that is more comprehensive. So number one, 
if you look at why someone sleeps the way they sleep, it's a function of physiology. So what are your serotonin levels like? What are your melatonin levels like? What is your cortisol at different stages at night? So we've got to have a full comprehensive physiological analysis of that side of your life. And so we have built that out. So we now we can do this with individuals. We can track them, uh, kits we send to their house and we get saliva and, and urine and blood and we actually get a full physiological picture. So we can check in or check out but this is a basic physiology problem. So you can lay there in bed all you want. You can take a cold shower. You can do all these things that I love. And you can listen to my good friend, Andrew Huberman, and he can tell you about doing yoga nidra and all this, but it's not going to matter if you're, and I can say this, we have had, I don't know, 10% of the professional athletes in the last five months have come back with melatonin levels that are you know, 20 to 100 X the upper end of the reference range. Is that from supplementation? So they're taking what they think is three to five milligrams of melatonin, which is a very standard, even low dose. Some folks will take 10 milligrams. So we'll do 15, which is kind of high. But the research is going to tell you even three milligrams is the same uh, as 10. So there's no real need to ex exceed three to five milligrams. So they take that. But what they're actually not realizing and said this has been shown scientifically is the melatonin concentrations in your supplements can actually be five to 10 to a hundred to a thousand times actually what's labeled on the supplement. So these individuals are thinking they're popping three milligrams of melatonin at night. And the half-life of melatonin is typically like 60 to 90 minutes, which means half of it is metabolized, you know, in the first hour. So, so it should be gone by the morning. But when you're taking concentrations that are multitudes and orders of magnitude more than you think, that half-life just is not enough. And so it just begins to build and build and build. And so they wake up sedated, effectively. They use more stimulants. They go to more caffeine. They go to more nicotine. They go to things like um, nootropics. And they're like, oh, my energy's great. I feel fine. But then they get to bed at night and they can't sleep. And so it's more, more melatonin. And we have fixed so many sleep problems by simply removing the melatonin and getting that shit the hell out of the system. And all of a sudden, they totally feel normal and very quickly they feel incredible if we can then get them off the stimulus or onto an appropriate stimulant plan um and there's some quick ways you can figure this out so basically do something like this um if you like coffee or stimulants fine right i don't i don't have an issue with them i don't like them personally but scientifically i'm totally fine with them and they are quite effective performance aid right so the, the research is strong there right so cool i'm fine with it if you can't function well, though, in the first 90 minutes of your day without caffeine, that's a very good indicator of something that's off physiologically. So I say, okay, fine, you can have as much coffee as you want, but it's good, you got to wait two hours. And they're like, what? And then what they'll typically find is after 30 minutes or so, they start to actually kind of wake up and then they don't really, they realize they don't need six cups in the morning to get going. Like one is totally fine. Right. So we can, you can do like very quick diagnostics like that and, and, and realize. Um, so that, that's one of our things is, is we're going to figure out this actual physiology side and check in or check out. When we see these mega melatonin doses, we just stay right there, right? Where it's like, we just got to correct your physiology and this alone is going to be there. But let's say their physiology looked great. Cortisol was appropriate and uh, DHEA looked appropriate and, and everything looked fine or close, right? No major red flags. There. Then we're going to go to the next level which is, are you simply giving yourself a lifestyle 
that enables you to do that. So in other words, are you getting home at midnight and then waking up at 6 a.m.? Well, like there's just, it doesn't matter how good you are. You don't have an actual window that allows it. And so we'll work on what we'll call a quadrant, which is prioritizing your four areas, which is your business or work or whatever you want to call it. Number one, your physical, whatever you want to call that, you know, working out, exercise, walking stuff, your relationships and whatever that is, you know, means to you. And then the last one is um, your recovery. So if you're, if you're hedged, you know, and you get 10 points to spread across all four categories, if you're spending nine out of 10 points on business, well, then you have literally no points on family or, or what, spirituality or, or whatever that, that stuff is. So we try to get them into a, an appropriate quadrant snapshot model where you actually have a shot. So let's say they check off there because that's not a super interesting. It's a, it's a very, very effective, very effective, but it's not like super interesting for a podcast to listen. Let's say your lifestyle is great. Your physiology is amazing. Then we need to go into what's your sleep hygiene. And people have talked about this at nauseam. So I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but this is, is your mattress cold? Is it dark, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, are you, you know, working and then shutting your phone? Like all these things people have talked about, like don't do this shit before bed, don't do this, you know, right. whatever. Cool. Let's say all that checks off. Well, the last thing we can check off is environment. And this is what nobody has any chance to catch up to us on. So we have a sensor that we can take, we can place it on next to your bed. And this runs full environmental diagnostics. So we're looking at the amount of light in your bedroom, as well as the melanopic lux, which is the specific wavelength that activates melanopic cells. Think of this as like the blue light thing, right? Yep. Um, we're looking at uh, volatile organic acids. So these are things being that are coming out of like your mattress that are floating out and, and being excreted. They're moving around. We're looking at, of course, temperature. We're looking at um, the sound pulse and the sound, how much sound, true sound is coming in your room. It's looking at uh, humidity. We have uh, a metric of what's called your CO2 cloud. So as you lay there in bed, you're breathing out and you're breathing out CO2. Well, you're not ventilating very hard, right? You're not going just, so you're breathing very lightly. So the CO2 just kind of leaks out of your mouth and stays right around your face. Well, anyone who's ever, you know, had hyperventilated and you're like, okay, put the brown bag kind of on your face. Well, the reason you do that is because you're breathing right back the CO2, right? So when you breathe back CO2 into your, or shit, we're in a mask, right? Like you, people have talked about that nauseum. What happens when you re rebreathe your own CO2, right? Well, this is very problematic for sleep because you're going to be shooting awake. It's going to, to knock you out of certain um, sleep stages that, that we want to be in is to make us, to simplify it. So we can measure that CO2 cloud around your face and head, and we can make sure that the environment is optimized and that that stuff is getting, is moving and not staying around um, your face. And a whole host of other environmental factors um, that we can take a look at and measure. In addition, this thing has a full PSG system on. So it's taking full EEG scans of your brain, it's taking full measure of uh, O2 saturation in your body. It's looking at movement. Um, we can see within a millimeter change of your chest. So if your ventilation, if you really start to breathe hard, we, the chest will actually move up and down. And it can do this on every, every individual body position. 
So when you're on your back, when you're on your right side, when you're on your left side, and a good example of this is we had an individual professional athlete uh, fairly recently who was having uh, like 280 of what are called episodes, um, uh, hypoapneas and, and uh, some other things. So in order for this to be called an episode, it has to meet four specific criteria, be a certain amount of physical movement, a certain amount of drop in oxygen saturation, a certain amount of change in EEG waves and, and some other things. So he had almost 280 of these episodes that met all four criteria throughout the night, which if you break the math down, that means he was having these sleep episodes about every two minutes his entire night. Well, we actually found out that like 80% of those were just simply when he laid on his back. And so we put a little device in his, you know, basically a little belt kind of thing. And by a couple of nights in, he was 90% reduction in sleep episodes by simply moving him on his physical side. And then there's a bunch of other stuff that we corrected over time. And now he doesn't have to wear that belt and he has uh, over double improvement in, in PSG sleep quality and episodes because uh, he had some physiology to correct as well um, by simply doing all that stuff. So that's the type of stuff that we can do with rest. Um, and it gets even like, that's the at-home version. If you want, I could tell you about the, like, the real version of these where you have basically an entire handcrafted optimal sleep environment in your entire bedroom. It's full biosensored, it's full AI equipped. It learns your physiology and adjusts everything along the way. So, uh, but so what does this thing look like? Man, that, that's the question. And maybe what does it cost? That, that may be too far of a stretch, but like, what, is it, what does it look like? Is this something that an average person can have in their house? Yeah. Yeah, this, this, the, the box you can. Well, let's yeah, talk sure. about it, man. I want to learn all about it. So there's, there's so many things to unpack there that I want to get into, but yeah, what is it just in general? Like, is this currently available for, for purchase or like, is this something you guys are coming out with or tell me about yeah, it? Yeah, I have um, my box. Like we're, we're here. Um, so I asked you at the beginning, I said, right, when's this going to go out? Because uh, uh, you got to push it back. But um, yeah, we have the boxes. We've, we've run a lot of quality control and put these up there. They're ready to go. Um, like price, I can't say specifically yet because by the time this comes out, it, it, you know, it'll change. It's sure. not, it's not on the same wavelength as uh, like Aura. It's not a couple hundred dollars, right? Uh, because we're running full labs, all those things. Um, the box itself is not that bad, but if you want the full sleep diagnostic, it's that's more. And there's kind of different models. So, like if you're a practitioner and you want to do this with all your clients, there's a way that we can like get this into you, and then you can kind of bring it back and forth and, and do Dude, this. Like so there's up, a bunch man. of different models. No, I think if you can correct, so I work with high level athletes and entrepreneurs like you, man. And if I think if I can correct their sleep, everything else just, everything else gets bumped up, right? The needle moves significantly. Yeah. So that's, and yeah, then, sign me up. This all comes with um, actual work with a true sleep scientist as well. So not only are you going to get this stuff, but then you're going to get consults with a sleep scientist that runs through the actual data and verifies double checks. And it's not just an algorithm that, that's going to kick things out. So yeah. That's um that's the version. And if you want to get really nuts, though, we can come into your bedroom, uh, wherever you want, master bedroom, whatever you want to do, and run the entire system on that, and then build the entire room to optimize to be an optimized sleep chamber. So this is everything from, uh, let's say you you walk in, and I says, all right, Ben, what time do you need to get up tomorrow? You're like ah, six thirty, cool. Well, twelve to fourteen hours before it's going to start putting you through a progression of sound, light, uh, and temperature to start prepping you for an ideal sleep situation that's going to back calculate based on your time. 
So you can't just walk into the room seven hours before and then it's going to you know, jar you awake or whatever. It's going to start walking you through cadence. Um, and it can do that. Again, the AI and everything is built into the room. This is one step away from Neuralink, man. This is like one step away from being plugged into the machine. Or you can build it by the entire building if you want. Um, and this is a drop. Basically, it's a pickup drop trailer that we could put anywhere. And the entire thing, front door to your bedroom, has been custom optimized for maximal sleep exposure. I love it, man. So one thing so those, you said, those are being built now, by the way. That's amazing. So I want to get into it. So one of the things you taught, you said in there, as you're going through the physiological parameters, is a CO2 cloud. I'd never heard it stated that way before. That makes a lot of sense. You're a CO2, you know, expert. We'll say breathing expert, CO2 expert. So I had never thought. Have you explored the possibility? And I think I know the answer, but have you explored the possibility of? Um, how this is directly implicating someone's stress perception, right? So if they're rebreathing the CO2, is that effectively what's happening? The body's giving stress, driving up the heart rate, waking them up? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we've actually run a study in our lab, uh, and this is in the peer review process. It's been admittedly in that process for quite some time. <laughs> is it sort of, this is how science works sometimes. Things just yeah. kind of fall down your prior yeah. to this. Um, but yeah, so running a basic CO2 tolerance test uh, is a reasonably decent predictor of one's state and trait anxiety. So state and trait, the difference is there is how much anxiety you're experiencing in this exact current moment, as well as just how much anxiety in general you are. It is not a 99% prediction or anything like that, um, but you can certainly differentiate, boy, I'm really smoked today. Um, another professional athlete, this is very, very high level, um, like Everyone in the world would know this person's name, no question. This individual was probably had a CO2 tolerance, what I would classify as poor, not like horrific, but poor. And after it probably took like eight months. So what, what number is that? Seconds. Give me an idea with the number. 30 seconds. Okay. Yep. Not great. Like, yep. Um, now now we're, we're routinely over 60 seconds. Yep. And then doubled, right? Um, that's a really good example of if he goes from 60 to 80, it's probably not doing much. But when he was at 30, it, it was a problem. Now, I've had another, uh, this is a major baseball player last week test, and that person was at six seconds. So one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. That is like you're talking extreme anxiety. Mm -hmm. So someone, the difference between someone who's going 32 and 38 is, is probably it's probably the same thing. I would even say maybe 30 to 40 or 50, whatever, 10 is. But when you have someone who is under 10 seconds, under 20 seconds, and I was actually asking my, my friend, Rob Wilson, about this from you know, Heart of Breath. And I was like, dude, under 10 seconds, have you heard of this? And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, and he's telling me more. I'm like, holy shit, this is really bad. And he's like, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a big problem. So, yeah, it, it does. It's not the only indicator. But think about it this way. Um, when you exercise, the primary byproduct is three things, um, cellular. So you're going to generate water, ATP, and ATP is that molecule we, we use to make energy. It's the only energy producing molecule in all of biology. So every animal we've ever known can only use ATP to make energy. And then the third thing is CO2. So it's made, in ex it's made with any physical movement or any, any metabolism, really. It doesn't have to be physical movement. And then it comes out of the cell and goes in your bloodstream. And this, uh, this is why we can test bicarbonate 
in your blood, and we have a pretty good indicator of actually your acidity, if you will, right? Like if you're super alkaline or super acidic. Sodium bicarbonate's a good metric directly of that. If CO2 tolerance, like it's the same shit, right? Like I like getting it actually as a tolerance measure. I like getting it as a blood marker. Well, when you start getting that CO2 levels start to rise, that's what gives you the desire or feeling like the sensation that you need to ventilate, you need to breathe. So when you start exercising, you start ventilating more because not necessarily the demand for more O2, but really the demand to rid yourself of the increased CO2. Well, that's also the same thing happens when someone's experiencing anxiety. They're overventilating because they're, what's happening is they're increasing the CO2 concentration in their body and they want to just dump it. And so you just start to naturally, and then you'll start to realize like that's not a very good breathing strategy. So you'll go, because that last, that little gas was when you're actually getting oxygen in to exchange. The rest of it is just CO2 dump. So you can imagine then a situation where you're trying to be as relaxed as possible and you're trying to actually detach from consciousness where you're breathing that CO2 back in. Every physiological sign inside your body is going to be screaming at you like, dude, something's going on. Oh my God, wake up, like, get, wake up, wake up, wake up. And we'll very routinely see this happens. Um, if you're at home listening, think about yourself, like if this ever happened to you where you're just exhausted and you get in bed and you're like, your eyes are burning. You can't wait to sleep. You close your eyes and within seconds, you shoot right back awake. That's a very, very classic sign of CO2 issues going on because everything in your body is screaming sleep, but the CO2 is going wake back up. We're in danger mode. Hmm. So it's hitting you in the face. Um, like it's a fairly solvable, fairly easy problem to solve. Actually, once you, I'll just go straight to the answer. You just have to improve airflow in your room one way or the other. You have to be careful though, because heat and air conditioning can also cause a lot of problems. Um, so one of the things that the, the absolute rest system, that's the name of this company, by the way, absolute rest. Um, we actually also measure particulates in the air, allergens and, and the amount of dust and stuff in the air. So if you're kicking on your heater at night, or your air conditioning, and that's moving a bunch of allergens and particulates that you don't, that don't agree with you into your air, that's just going to make, you're just trading one problem for another. Uh, and so that's why, like, if you really want to guarantee these problems are solved, like, we just, we have to, like, we can solve it, I guarantee it. It just may cost a, you know, tremendous amount of money. Um, but that's the CO2 cost situation, is make sure airflow is, is really optimized. And that can depend on everything from the setup of your mattress in your room to having a simple fan on that just moves some air or, or whatever, whatever. So, yeah. So stay on the CO2 topic, Andy, could we go into what you've seen as the best needle movers to improve somebody's CO2 tolerance? Yeah. It's the said principle. Said principle is specific adaptation to impose demand. In other words, if you want to grow your bicep, do a bicep curl. I don't really care how many reps that like that's a, just, you have to do a bicep curl period. Right. If you want to get better at writing, you have to write. The specific adaptation is a reflection of the imposed demand. Practice holding your breath. Practice letting CO2 build up. That's as simple as it has to be. If you want to do that by exercising, fantastic. If you're not an exerciser, that'll work. If you are an exerciser, you're already getting that stress. So that's not going to probably do much. So now you need to do something like a practice breath hold. Um, you can do apnea. I'll give you two resources. Okay. So if you go to shift adapt, I think it's shiftadapt.com. Yep. You can look up their CO2 tolerance test. 
follow the directions, enter your score, and it will give you a specific breathing practice to do based on your CO2 tolerance score. Hmm. So it could be what's called cadence breathing. It could be box breathing. It could be triangle breathing. It could be apnea breathing. So depending on how high or low your CO2 tolerance is, it's, some of those are more appropriate than others. Another thing you can do is go to the XPT Life app, which is fantastic. In that app, it has a similar thing. It has a, uh, a couple of different breathing tests you could do for CO2 tolerance. Inside of that, it'll also give you a whole bunch of CO2 tolerance building specific routines. So I like this because you can just open up the app and be like, basically help me improve my CO2 tolerance. And it just has guided breathing things that just walk you through it and you don't have to do anything. So those are really good places to go. Um, if you want something where you're like, you just have to walk me through the process. If not, I'll give you a real simple one right now. Um, a box breathing routine or a triangle, it doesn't matter. Where just start at like five seconds, which means inhale for five seconds. I'll try to do as much or all of these through your nose only as possible. Um, so inhale for five seconds, hold that for five seconds, exhale for five seconds, inhale or hold that for five seconds. So it's a box, five seconds top, five seconds side, five seconds box. If you've looked in a box breathing at all, it's simple. A triangle is the same thing, but you cut out one of those holds, right? Um, if you do five seconds and you repeat that, say 15 times, you're like, that was super easy. Okay, then make the box a six-second box or a 10-second or a 12-second box. Find that place where you're like, oh, man, this is really, really hard. Just like exercise. Like, you want it to be hard, but not like just unbelievably hard. But you don't want it to be so easy either. So find that place where you're like, this sucks a little bit, but okay, I'm getting better. Are you using HRV as a measure of physiological recoverability? Yeah, we do. Readiness is um, depends on the athlete we're working with, but HRV is okay. Um, there, there's just some some real significant problems with it, but in the right person, in the right environment, um, we will use it. So, so some of the professional athletes, they, they like it a lot and it can be helpful. Uh, in fact, I was literally um, giving a talk um, at the NFL Combine in a few weeks and I was, I'm talking kind of on that topic specifically. So I was working on uh, that this morning. Um, with HRV, you have to start at the very top, which is number one, first question asked, did you collect good or bad data? In other words, sometimes you wake up and your HRV is way off. Occam's razor says, let's go with the most plausible, simplest explanation first. So instead of jumping to, oh, I'm, I'm physiologically shot, I'm blah, blah, blah. Like, did you sure that the strap was on right? Like, did you, are, you, are you sure that it wasn't just like a, yeah, a kid woke up in the middle of the night and said, Okay, you're probably not physiologically toast. Um, you're, you're okay, bad data. Let's assume it's good data. Okay, great. And the next question is, all right, um, what phase of my uh, programming am I in? In other words, am I peaking or am I adapting? So if you're in a phase where you're in competition season or you're trying to physiologically peak that day, that's different than if you're trying to induce adaptation. So if it's the induce adaptation phase, then I'm probably not doing much with a low HRV score. I don't really care, right? Um, I'm going to continue my training session as planned. I'm going to do my work schedule as planned. Like it, it's fine. In fact, most people won't even really notice what it feels like. Um, let's say it is. But let's say you're like, oh, no, I need to be performing fantastic today, whether it's sport or just like I got really important shit I got to do work today. 
fine, whatever. So you're, you're competing, you're peaking right then. The next question you have to ask yourself, is this acute or chronic? A single acute day of HRV or whatever your readiness metric is, by the way, I don't give a shit about. There's so many ways I can explain it to you that it doesn't matter. Um, even bad, like a single bad night of sleep has almost no physiological bearing. It doesn't matter at all. Um, it will not change maximal physical performance or mental performance or anything. What you really care about are five to seven days strung together. So we're looking at big trends. So with our HRV data, I have it going back four to five years on some athletes. And we can start to look and go, okay, what do you typically look like in January? What do you typically look like week two of your season? And, and I'm seeing, whoa, your average HRV is really low compared to what now. Okay, something is happening differently now. But just like a day or two in a tank, I don't care about. I'm, I'm not making really any changes whatsoever. Maybe some very mild ones, but like I'll probably just try to like, all right, we're going to do a little bit more aggressive warm-up. We're going to play some louder music today, like or we're going to do something fun real fast. Whatever the hell needs to jump, you know, like jump you out of it. Um, we're going to do a competition before. We're like, we're going to, we'll do weird shit like, um, okay, we're doing, um, we're doing our conditioning first today. We're just going to flip it around, just have some fun. Like whatever the hell the thing is, you're just like, this gets you, it's just a stays, uh, a state shift. You just kind of break the pattern. Um, I might do some specific food stuff. Like I might give them a comfort food or we might give them like, a, oh shit, I might do the opposite. Like, no, we're not going to eat breakfast today. Why? And we'll play some stupid Cameron Haynes meme or a Jocko song, a Jocko talk. And we'll just be like, let's like, we're going to have some fun. Like shit like that'll snap you out of a bad HRV day, right? Whatever it is, the athlete does. So you just, you kind of have to just coach, right? Um, and do the same thing to yourself. I love for like business people. Uh, I'm, I know, you know, Tony Robbins, um, he has this really wild shit where he'll just like jump up and down on a little, uh, like a little tiny um, trampoline and just like scream and scream and scream. I love it. Like I love it for business people. Like you'll be surprised. You just like do some jumping jacks and just fucking put some headphones in, put it to 10 and just scream. Like it'll actually change real fast how you're feeling. It's yep. super effective. As like kooky as it is, I don't think it's like the best thing to do every single day. Although, it's not bad or anything, but you can pull that trick out. Like it'll, it'll change how you're feeling right now. And I promise you, if you then go back and relax for 20 minutes, check your HRV, your HRV is just right back to goal. Right. Um, if it's none of those things and it's, it is now chronic and it's, we're supposed to be peaking. Now we have to play some different games. Um, but that's in generally, that's how we treat um, anything that falls into the readiness score, whether it's our force velocity data, whether it's uh, any internal or physiological measure like HRV, or um, we'll do blood work daily and urine work daily on some of our athletes. And so some of those numbers are off. Um, we look at all those things. Are you drawing a correlation between HRV and CO2? Yeah, often. Yeah, very, very often, especially if they're mild to moderate. Um, so if, if uh, you check your CO2, I'll put it this way. What I like about CO2 is it is much more representative representative of subjective so what i mean by that is like and they do a co2 tolerance test and it's terrible right like very rarely does that happen but very often they're like i feel crappy co2 is in fact crappy so it it's not as often as they feel terrible and they, their co2 tolerance is actually outstanding hrv misses that sometimes so you'll see a lot of, in fact it, it takes the buy-in from a lot of athletes because they'll be like i feel great or the opposite right they're like i feel terrible my 
And so they're just like, this thing sucks. Like, well, that, that, that's why you can't like, you can't just throw everything into one of these things because you know, it, there's a lot of things that go into your subjective feeling of the day. Um, yeah. So we, we do try to tease out how you just feel because like you got yelled at this morning or whatever versus like you're physiologically actually strained right now. Some people could feel low with, you know, or feel great, have low HRV because of cortisol, right? Maybe they have just a healthy cortisol spike. Maybe they drink a cup of coffee and they're fired up. As an, as an athlete, you know that there are days you're just like, man, you feel everything is off, but then you actually start training and you're like, great. What the hell? And you just like hit PRs or you get like really, there's, there's a fine line between listening to yourself and also then this convincing yourself, like just do the work. How much are you looking at um, individual variances from a perspective of the nervous system? So like someone may be born with a sympathetic nature, someone may be born with a parasympathetic, parasympathetic nature. Uh, and how much are you looking at that from a context of how you design a training routine? I, I don't think we have any actual metrics for that. So you can certainly, I would say, broadly categorize people in terms of what that means, why it matters, and what to do about it. We don't have anything that I'm aware of that we could measure and then objectively do things differently with. Um, the only thing I can say we can do in that respect is actually look at outcomes. So if you're simply not getting an outcome, an adaptation that we're looking for after a while, then we can go back and say, maybe we're misaligned um, because you need more, you need less or things like that. But I'm not aware of any strong way to actually diagnose that in the laboratory. Yes. From a perspective of like, I'm sure you've observed different, very, very different personality types, right? Somebody who's super driven, super outgoing, super eccentric versus someone who's maybe a little more introverted, a little more recluse. That's kind of what I'm looking at. Are, are those, there's no way that you're approaching those differently from a training perspective. You just don't see a difference. I don't think so. I don't, I don't think we've ever really needed to put into place any different routines with the one exception. If we go back to that snapshot quadrant model, um, we're, we're trying to make sure we have an appropriate balance between those four categories. So training, recovery, relationships, and business, right? whatever that stuff means to each individual person. One thing we do pay attention a lot to is, okay, if we're not getting recovery, what are we doing for recovery? And that's when the introvert versus extrovert, or you know, just to globally call it that, starts to really matter. So for example, if it's like, hey, um, you, you're spending the same amount of hours as somebody else on your relationships and other stuff, but actually relationship time drains you. So that's not actually a recovery thing because you, you need to recover by being in isolation. Or the opposite, right? Like, hey, our schedule is not, you're not getting to go out very much and you're not getting a lot of social connection. So you're not really recovering as much as you can because you need that stuff, you know, more classic extrovert or whatever we want to call it. Um, so that is something we will pay attention to. Um, and again, if we're seeing like, hey, there let's try this. Like, can we change it? Can we take the training down or can we take something down? Because we need, I need you to have more whatever thing is that they do to be more socially exposed or not. Um, so that I'd say as far as we do, but in terms of like actually writing their training or nutrition or any other programs, um, I, don't, I don't think we've seen any need to do it differently. Let's talk about hydration because I know that's an area of, of interest for you and, and massive opportunity for athletes out there. So you guys were last we spoke using a shirt to measure um, 
sodium excretion where you're not? Is that still the same? Well, so there's a bunch of ways you can do it. Um, you can get uh, small patches that right. can be placed anywhere on your body and measure that. So Levelin is a company that's been doing it for a long time and, and um, she's been around for forever. Basically, they can ship you a little kit and you can put that on your arm, collect that, send it back in the lab and they'll, they'll send you a report. Um, Gatorade has since come out with a, with a product that's like $25 for two patches. Uh, and you can get it, put it on your arm and it gives you basically real-time kind of real-time uh, indications of the sodium content. There's some actually way more exciting and interesting uh, tech coming that's going to be here. I think you can actually sign up for it now. One of them called, is called Nix, N-I-X. And they're not available yet, but they're taking pre-orders. And I'll say that that is, um, I've, I've been able to go behind the scenes a little bit with that company. And the, the tech involved in that is, is significantly better. Um, it's a little pricier than Gatorade, not as pricey as Levelin, but it's real time. It has some other some other really cool features. So you need to understand a little bit about what's coming out of your body. And what primarily what we're talking about here is, is sodium. Um, and so to, to back up just a quick touch, hydration is not just drinking water. Okay, like that, that's that's a surface level way to think about it, but it's also a way to get yourself in trouble. Um, hyponatremia is real. So hyponatremia happens when you just chug too much water. Um, we had an athlete very recently who's by the end of his comp his competitions take four to five hours. And he was just like, man, by the end, I get like kind of foggy brain, just like, I don't know what's going on. I try to just chug water and drink a bunch of water. And so one of the very first questions I asked him was like, okay, when you get to the end, when you're done, are you peeing like pretty clear or is it really yellow? And I was interested because if he's peeing clear, then I was concerned he's, he's maybe drinking way too much water and getting into hypernatremia because that for sure can give you brain fog and a bunch of other problems. Well, it turns out he's like, no, like I, I don't even pee for hours afterwards. And then it's like, going on. so then it's like, okay, now I have a salt issue. And so I can just run a very quick diagnostic to figure out what your hydration problem is. Cause it's going to be one of three areas. It's going to be water. It's going to be salt or it's going to be sugar. And you got to make sure that that all three of those things are what we call um, isosmotic. So they're coming in at the same concentration that your blood is. If not, if you're drinking, it's too dilute. What happens is your blood vessels expand very quickly. So the volume in your blood vessels gets large and your body then interprets that as saying, we have too much volume. It kicks in its natural diuretics and you start peeing out water. And so this is why just chugging water when you're dehydrated, like if you're really, really dehydrated, it's okay, um, but you can make yourself sick. You can throw up, you can give yourself diarrhea, or you can simply lose um, you know, 85% of that fluid back in urine really quickly. And so we see this very commonly where people are really dehydrated, they chug water, they start peeing mm. here, and they're like, okay, I'm better. Well, they actually haven't fixed the hydration issue at all because all they've done is taken water, their mouth, gut, blood, urine, and it's out. And it never actually got into tissue because that's what we're trying to get, right? We need to re reclaim blood volume, but we also need to reclaim hydration into the actual tissue or muscle or organ or wherever we're trying to go. So we want to make sure that those three categories, salt, sugar, water, are in the correct concentrations. If it's too concentrated, then you can actually kind of go in the opposite direction, pull fluid out in your bloodstream, and then you're in a bad spot. If you can simply replace the concentration of your blood with, with what you lost, then it's going to expand the volume of the blood vessels. It's going to have enough time for it to then move into the tissue. And we know that salt and sugar specifically 
pull fluids into tissue. And so that's why they are so effective at enhancing hydration over something as simple as you know, just water. And that's what we're looking for. So then the, the blood volume kind of comes back to a normal level. You don't think you need to excrete a bunch of it and you push a bunch of it into tissue. So all that preamble to say, this is why understanding what you're sweating out can be such a big deal. If you're a high, medium, or low salt sweater, um, then you, you probably want to match your electrolyte um, consumption or your salt concentration or whatever you're doing with a, a somewhat equivalent concentration. And that's, that's how you're going to, to nail things until um, you, you feel the best the longest time. Can you talk about those numbers, Andy? So what is like, you know, parts, you know, how many milligrams of sodium per liter or whatever? Is there, is there a calculation that's typical for making an isotonic with the blood? Yeah, you can do that. But unless you have a sweat patch, it's not going to matter. You're not going to know. So I'll give you the, the easier version. Because um, any sweat patch you get, it's going to come and it's going to tell you exactly the amount of milligrams. I'll put it this way. They're going to actually measure sodium. And then from there, since we know the molecular weight of sodium and chloride, and just to maybe make this really clear, salt, like table salt, is just sodium chloride. Okay, one part each. But the molecular weight of sodium and chloride are different. And so you can't just weigh them equally. It's kind of like a fancy chemistry thing. So what's happening is with any of these metrics, they're just going to measure sodium, then they can infer chloride. Like you typically want like a three to one or four to one potassium to sodium ratio. So you can kind of just run some quick numbers on that uh, and get close. Um, I think that the easier way to think about concentration wise is look at the color of your clothing. And a hat is the best example. So if you ever see somebody who has a hat and they just have like white crusty stuff over, or if they wear like a bandana or something workout, then that typically means they're a very high salt sweater. So that's a really quick way to figure it out. Um, you can taste it, honestly, like you can wipe it. It's kind of gross, but like just taste it a little bit. And if you're like, wow, that's really, really, really salty. Um, they also, the other way you can figure out it is, is sweaters. Um, so you know how some people, you just like, they just start moving or whatever. They walk in the gym, they get dressed and you're just like, you're just pouring in sweat. What the hell? So those things can be visible and calculating your sweat rate. In other words, how much you're sweating is, is really easy. All you have to do is weigh yourself naked, go do whatever you went, you're going to do, dry off completely and then weigh yourself naked again. So let's say you lost two pounds and you worked out for an hour. Then it's very easy to figure out, all right, you lose 32 ounces per hour or 32 per 60 minutes, you know, divide that too. It's, it's a pretty easy calculation to figure out. Um, if you want to use the cheater version, you can just take your body weight divided by 30, and that's going to tell you roughly how many ounces to drink um, per every 15 minutes or so. If you want the super cheater version, it's typically like five to seven ounces every 15 to 20 minutes or something. It's like a, a pretty close number. Um, if you want to go to different electrolyte sources, the majority of electrolytes you're going to get, so this is noon. This is one of my favorites. It's called Scratch. Labs, it's, it's really fantastic. Um, Element, L-M-N-T, like right on the front, it tells you it's a thousand milligrams. That's one of the higher ones. Uh, Cerolite is fantastic. There's a bunch of really good ones, but most of these are gonna be somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to 400 milligrams of salt per serving. Um, so what we typically do is I kind of branch them into low, medium, and salt. So if you wanna get like a, and you can just look at, you can look at noon and liquid IV and. Uh, like all these different ones. And uh, the lower end runs are going to be in that two to three 
hundred milligrams per serving. The moderate ranges are going to be five to 700. And then those ones at the top, like element are a thousand milligrams. So really, or, or one gram, that's kind of the same thing. So um, you can kind of think of it like that. You can also just try. So just tr try a day with kind of one from each category. Um, and then just figure out like which one makes you feel best or worse or not. Um, and then the last thing to kind of think about this is hydration during competition is a little bit of a last straw. So you, you, you're much better taking care of it the day before and several hours before. So worrying about it during or after you're, you're dehydrated is, is a lose a bit of a losing bet. You can do some things, but you're really kind of catching up. So if you are a whole foods kind of only or almost exclusively type of eater, then adding a lot of extra salt is, is probably going to make you feel better because you're just not getting a lot uh, in your natural food. So of course you're putting some salt on your food, you're cooking it, but you're just, you're eating real whole foods. There's not a lot there. Um, you're probably getting, you know, 300 milligrams a day in your food, like maybe something like that, like the, the normal RDA and stuff recommendations are more like 2,500 milligrams a day. You're probably in the two, you know, 2,000, 3,000 milligrams to, per day, like normal, like that, that's a pretty good kind of number. Um, a lot of folks do better higher though. They just do. Um, what gets people into problems is if you eat a lot of processed food, you could easily be getting 7,000 a day, like sometimes 8,000. You can go, because one meal might have 2,500 megs right. in it, right? You just, is, there a high end, is there a high end of that? Because I know uh, Dr. Dino Antonio says like 10 grams a day. Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. yeah 10 grams a day, dude, it's, it's all context, man. Like if you are... 48 years old, you're 35 pounds overweight. You got a little bit high blood pressure. You don't exercise. You have a hard job. Like if you're at 10 grams a day, you, you like that's could be seriously dangerous. That, that's really fucking problematic. Most likely if you're 32 and you see the sun and you control your, and you do all these things and you eat whole foods, like you might feel great on 6,000 milligrams a day, maybe 7,000. I don't know. Like, if you're lean and you're training a lot and you're sweating a ton in and out there. So, so the entire sodium picture matters a lot is, is kind of why I started this thing is if you're eating a lot of processed foods, you probably don't need no offense, Rob, but you probably don't need two or three element packages a day. In fact, that might be detrimental, right? That's just a ton of fucking salt. Yeah. If you're, you know, really conscious and you don't consume that many things and you don't, oh, here's another thing too to add. Um, you're drinking two or three sodas a day. Well, fuck, there you like you're just you're just way crushed on salt, but people who live kind of lifestyles more like we do, like you, you just don't have any salt intake other than what you put consciously on your food because you're drinking only water, and teas and like there's just no added preservatives and salt or any salt like material in anything. You're probably fine having a couple of those elements and going up an extra two thousand milligrams a day. In fact, again, you might you might feel really really good or a lot better with them. So the thing of salt is is context matters. Entire salt intake and outtake uh, they, they matters a lot to whether it's like you're going from this was a performance answer to this is like very detrimental to your health to i just kind of was out of it and didn't feel great and i know you're in charge of you know all physiological parameters and training um, guidelines for your athletes and i'm curious 
how much you guys, if, if at all, are paying attention to body composition as a marker of performance, right? So is it just kind of like a side effect of proper training that they get in good shape? Or do you actually do some specific body composition training? Yes. So that is one of our visible stressors. Um, boy, there's a lot going on here. Okay. So depending on the sport, it may or may not matter. Um, if you're a basketball player, it's probably in your best interest to be like quite lean, right? Because you're just absorbing a lot of extra a force, jumping, running. Um, you don't want to be excessively lean, but for a bunch of other problems, that's not the interesting part though. Um, if you're an NFL player, depending on your position, it may or may not matter really at all. Um, if you're a power lifter trying to break. So it really depends on the sport and the individual we're working with, whether we are somewhere between like moderately to massively concerned from a health perspective. Now that, now that's, that answer is different. It is a big, big, big concern because we know the role adipocytes have in regulating physiology. It's not simply about the weight or the visual. Um, it is about what those cell types can do and what processes that they are involved with that has our concern for, for global health. So it's, you don't need to be under 10% body fat, um, but you start getting past the 30% marker and higher. And we've had plenty of people kind of in our executive programs that, that, that look like that. And um, it, it becomes a real physiological consequence. It's, it becomes a real, real, real problem. The cytokine storm that can come from that is, is, is can be quite nasty. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to track that for some folks. Um, so do we go and put together programs to reduce it? It, again, it depends on if it's a real need or not. Um, what we generally try to do is if we can correct your physiology to getting you closer towards that true physiological potential, body composition tends to just take care of itself in, in large part. So it tends to just move when we get, um, when we get the system happy, it just tends to take care of that in some part. Um, now in some part, then we have to just go very specifically put you in a caloric deficit and other things, but um, a lot of times we can move the needle three to five percent um, in terms of absolute amount, but by just getting some physiology correct, you start sleeping better. And testosterone goes up. We just had an athlete come back um, this month, double testosterone. Um, no, no, no uh, pharmaceuticals at all. Um, nothing like that. And like, oh, geez, body composition got better. We didn't change calorie intake really at all, but obviously caloric output went up. And so body fat sort of dropped and, and muscle mass went up because of the testosterone and this other thing. So yeah, sometimes a lot, sometimes not much. What's your greatest passion within this context? Cause there's so many things. Is it just like the optimization of the system? Is it all of it put together or is there one specific facet that you just find yourself being pulled to? I think my answer would be that it is hundred percent, not one specific. I think that's probably the thing is I don't like, this is why Dan and I work together so well. Uh, he likes really kind of staying in that lane. And I, I hate staying in one particular area. So if you look at my CV and my labs, it's like, your shit, this is all over the place. I'm like, yeah, that's how, that's just how I love it. Like I love it that way. So I think I'm attracted to that. The fact that there's just so many avenues to go down. Um, and, you know, I feel like every year, our systems just, they just go leaps and bounds up and up and up and, and our capabilities are, 
are going there and, and some of the new stuff that we have and we're working on. Um, yeah, it's just some really cool shit that uh, it, it's so far above and beyond what I ever thought I would ever be into uh, from a performance side. That's amazing, man. I love it. Andy, I don't want to take too much of your time, man. Um, that was incredible, hugely valuable. We could probably keep going for another two or three hours, but I want to be respectful. Um, I'm not sure if you want to offer a point of contact for our listeners, send to your social media, where can they reach out to you or learn more from you? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess Instagram and, and Twitter um, are the best places. Of course, the YouTube page has the most uh, education. Like I, all I do that is on my YouTube pages, but my university lectures and, and stuff on there. So education wise, that's the best place. Um, I don't have a fantastic landing. You know, I'll put it in. You can just go to my website. Uh, just my name, andygalpin.com. And then I think that on there somewhere is like a contact thing. And um, I will for sure get those emails if, uh, if you ping me there. That's probably the best place. Now you're back in the lab doing some research or are you pretty much still out of that? We're, uh, we're still, um, we're not in a good space yet. There, so <laughs> It's going to be, it's going to be probably a handful more months, hopefully. And then we can really get, I mean, technically we're allowed back in, but it's just not feasible yet. So yeah, hopefully you looking forward to getting back in. Yeah. Looking yeah. forward to getting back in or, or is it, been really a blessing that you're out you're out of it well both man like it's been a, it's been a blessing we've been able to build you know this absolute rest stuff and um stuff with dan a biomolecular athlete program is would have never happened without some of these um you know times away but uh i'm also super jammed to go back in and finish some of our intermittent fasting and hypertrophy stuff and some of the other muscle stuff we're working on um yeah man science is fun as fuck so can't wait. What are you working on hypertrophy wise? So we were really <laughs> prior to the pandemic, we were close to three years into an intermittent fasting and hypertrophy. And we were two, maybe two and a half weeks away from finishing that whole trial. And um, you know, we got shut down and I begged. I was like, I swear, just give me two weeks. And it did obviously I had to pull the plug there. Um, so we want to get back in and finish that study. And then, um, what was the hypothesis on that one, Andy? Well, we don't have any, you don't have a, any hypotheses going in. In general, what we were trying to understand is okay, I'll say this a couple of ways. I'm interested in a different type of science than I was earlier in my career. This study was a nice example of that. So, the study in particular, we were interested in um, this is a collaboration between myself and Menno Henselmans. Uh, if you know Menno, hmm. um, yeah, yeah, great guy. Um, and you know, like there's a lot of interesting stuff with intermittent fasting, but what we were curious about is what about, what about the other side? What about people who are trying to actively gain as much muscle as possible? You're trying to go through a growth side. Like, does it help? Does it hinder? Does it, does it not matter as long as protein and calories are equated? Like, is it irrelevant? Um, and so that's, that was the real purpose of it. So we had, you know, multiple groups and they were matched for total calories and timing and training and everything full supplementation and sleep and, and everything was, was matched. And one group just got all their calories in an eight hour window and one group got it in a 14 hour window. So we were really close. Um, you know, those are training studies and we had our, our last cohort in and they were all 
eight plus weeks into the training and just needed a few weeks to finish and post test. And so we lost those, but the representation of it, the type of science I'll be doing on the board is I'm no longer interested in siloed stuff. So I don't want to do any more studies, nothing against this, but I don't want to do more studies where you do an entire 10 week training study. And then all you measure is who got you know, stronger in the squat. That's great. I mean, that, that's fine. Like I, I still have some interest in those, but because I work with humans, um, I'm more interested in understanding what are the, what's, what's the pro con map of this? In other words, um, okay. So say the intermittent fasting was better for muscle growth, but people um, had a 40% increase in digestive problems and they had, you know, they, they lost sleep quality and they reported hating them. That's an important piece of information for people to yeah. know, or maybe the opposite. Maybe they said this was actually easier. My sleep's better, um, but I gained three percent less muscle. Or a lot of people might be like, "Well, I'll take three percent loss, but uh, my digestion, what, whatever." Like, I don't care how it landed for any of the metrics. But I think that stuff is what people really care about. They want to know how's it going to affect my happiness. Is it sustainable? Yeah. Um, how much of it? And so our studies actually are all of our measures have all those in them. It's no longer just ultrasound muscle biopsy. They like, oh, um, we're trying to be more comprehensive in the things. So we have sports psychologists on board and sleep scientists on board. We had microbiome on board. So we're taking stool samples and, and running full analyses um, in collaboration with some microbiome laboratories, not like, you know, commercially available stuff like actual true. That's the type of stuff I'll, I'll move back to when we get the lab going is um, so we can just say, hey, look, like, because science is really bad about being like, it worked or it didn't, or it's true, it's false. And that's, that's very difficult to find in real life. It's more of like, here's the confidence interval. It's likely to do this. And most people, it's also likely to do that. And there was that styling with what you did. Uh, I don't know. I, I, first of all, I couldn't tell you um, ethics wise. And number two, I don't know. We don't, it's, it's just actually this study is triple blinded. So I'm three steps removed from, so I don't even have access to the data. It's all like locked and I won't look at anything until the entire thing is done. And then I'll look at all of it. And then I won't even know the, the, uh, the groups until it's actually then unblinded past that. So, so you'll have to really go back and redo the whole thing. Um, no, we'll just need to finish the last cohort. Just they'll have to restart again. It'll take us a long time to, we have to go back and redo a lot of the, calibrations and validity and like all this stuff and make sure that they're, and then we'll read the cohort. So what's one of the most interesting research papers you've come across either yourself or somebody else's that was maybe, um, you know, contrary to what you previously believed. Oh shit. I mean, God, uh, then you're talking 50% of my career or more. Um, I mean, there's, there's few things that I, I don't know. Like there's a, I don't know what the percentage would be, but the percentage of things I've changed my mind on is, is far higher than most people would realize. Um, I could go into so many areas, like all the breathing stuff I thought was hot garbage. Initially all the gut microbiome stuff I thought was hot garbage. Um, I thought all intermittent fasting and keto was all hot garbage uh, initially. 
Um, I thought sarcoplasmic hypertrophy was nonsense. I thought, um, oh, I changed my mind entirely on the interference effect of and concurrent training and aerobic exercise with hypertrophy. Uh, I mean, there's just so many areas that I've, mm -hmm. oh, this is stupid to now. And then I was like, oh, maybe now I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Just, just, a lot of times it's like, you're partially right. Yeah. But you were like yeah. still pretty because well, a good, mostly a good scientist. It's, it's, it's very important to have a healthy degree of skepticism, which it sounds like you've done, you have since the beginning and you've just been willing to have an open mind as well. It's the way I approach life. I say, I'm an, I'm an open-minded skeptic. I think it seems yeah. to make sense as a scientist. I did this giant video on my YouTube um, called uh, Bulletproof Bullshit Detector. And I basically, my goal was to walk people through how to understand and think through complex ideas. And so the way that I will express this is there's, there's a relationship, right? And everyone is somewhere different on this gradient. And on one end of the gradient are uh, the flat earthers and the folks that no matter, like anything that comes up that's different from the narrative, they jump all over and then they're 100% certain, right? And so they have tremendous certainty combined with limited information, right? On the other end of the spectrum, you've got tremendous certainty with tremendous amounts of information. But there's a little bit of a false premise here because sometimes we have too much certainty um, in the face of like what we think is tremendous information, but it's just never actually been clearly established. So let's just say, let's plant the flag here and we'll, we'll do this and then we'll wrap. Um, we've got the flat earthers on one side of the spectrum and on the other side of the spectrum are uh, water is made of H2O, right? Okay, great. So if somebody came to me and tagged me in a post or sent me something of like, hey, did you realize like, H2O, water is not made of H2O. I'm not going to spend a millimeter of time on it because that has such an extraordinary claim that has so much evidence behind it. You would need so much equal evidence for me to even consider paying attention to it. So I'm just going to ignore it, right? There's only so many hours we have in a day. I'm going to ignore it, going to ignore it. On the other end of the spectrum, I'm also ignoring it, right? It's just like, okay, there's nothing here for me until you come with tremendous amounts of evidence. Now, some people live kind of in the middle of the spectrum. I'm like, well, okay, I need a little bit of evidence to swing my way. Blah, blah, blah. I'm probably hedged more towards the right, right? Like, I'm generally not going to act until I see a lot of information. Um, I'm slower to move. I'm behind the curve a lot. But I want it to be that way. Um, your government, you want to be even further down the line than me, right? You want the government to make decisions very slowly, um, you want them to to really, in fact, you want them to only be making decisions about things that are really concrete. The rest, like, it's not our job. Like, we're only going to give you things that we are just for sure, for sure, for sure on. Um, practitioners and gurus and folks, they're going to go way to the left of that spectrum of me. And they just don't really take any information or intuition or small piece of information. And they're going to go all over it. But we need those people, too, because not everyone in the world can wait for someone like me. To change my mind. You are sick right now. You need things like you. So we need people across and we need systems and institutions across all of these spectrums. We need that, right? Because we have innovation and help and progression from all parts of the spectrum. You just simply have to understand where you are personally on that. And then the person who's giving you recommendations, where they are.
And as long as we're having honest dialogue about that, then I'm totally fine with it, right? So if you think that putting your, you know, your bare skin on the earth improves the ions in your body and your energy gets better, like, I don't give a shit. I'm not listening to that at all. Maybe I'm wrong, just like I was about some of the things I just talked about, but I don't really care until I start to see some reasonable evidence on that. And when that evidence comes up, I might go, oh, shit, great. It's just not something I'm going to take action on yet because it, like you're so far from removed from evidence. Fine. But someone else wants to do it. I don't care. That's great. I'm not going to call them a shit, fucking snake oil, whatever. I'm just going to be like, that's not my personal interest level right now because the, the evidence hasn't hit my threshold for action. Right. Yeah. But people's threshold for action is different levels. It's just as long as we're honest about that and we're not selling the foot in soil, like it's the same effectiveness as a high grade pharmaceutical. Like, like not the same one's better. Pharma, I'm not more like pharmaceuticals better than you know, I have a book called Unplugged. Like I'm generally like I want you to be that far. My point is though is like we're just having honest conversations, like here's where I am in the spectrum. I tend to take action very quickly and I don't need a ton of evidence, blah, blah, blah. Or I'm super slow. So just because you doesn't make me better. Like we're, none of us are better than anyone else because there's right. different problems that require different solutions. Um, it's just a false representation that all, that's the only thing I give a shit about. Um, so acting like things are grounded scientific shit when they're only from cell culture research or they're only from a yeast model. And then in fact, there has been science to show that that's not actually going to transfer to humans. And that's the type of shit where I'm like, you're, you're, you're a pile of shit. Like you had an idea about what happened in yeast. We ran trials on humans. It didn't work at all. And now you're still just ignoring that and hiding that from people. That to me is, is um, that's a problem. So anyhow, I don't even know how, remember how we got here, but uh, that's where I'm at. Helping Dr. Ann Galpin. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I hope you'll be back again soon. Yeah, man, anytime. That is a wrap. Ladies and gents, thank you very much for being here. I am your host, Ben Bukowski. As always, incredibly grateful for your ear incredibly grateful for your time. I realize that you have so many options to choose from that you continue to come back and choose the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. And we do our best to bring you the best curated guests in the world when it comes to understanding high performance. The way I explain how I choose guests is I want people who begin where everyone else ends, because I think that's a really great way to see really pushing the, the possibilities of human performance. That's where we learn. When you stay inside a box, I mean, a box of self-limiting beliefs or a box of what you think everyone else thinks is accurate or what everyone else thinks is effective, you live in this box and nothing ever changes. And this tends to be the, the uh, a very big part of the world of fitness is people tend to just go, oh, this worked for the guys in the 70s and 80s. So let's continue to do it. And that's just not interesting to me, right? I want to find people who are pushing the realms. And, and, and I always say that people who are successful have one foot on the other side of discomfort. And Dr. Galpin is absolutely someone of his caliber. He's always pushing the boundaries of what's possible while keeping an open mind to really everything that's out there. And I suggest each and every one of you guys do that as well. I'm highly skeptical of everything and everyone, but I also want to explore and listen and hear and uh, have a greater understanding. And the, the future podcast guests on this episode are very much in that realm, people who are truly pushing the realm of human potential and human possibilities. So I hope that excites you as much as it does me. If it does, don't forget to subscribe, leave, leave us a review. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
um, and everywhere else that amazing podcasts are subscribed to and listened. Have an amazing day and live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.